Just in case, if, if you weren't here last week, I obviously started a, a little two-part series called Defense Against the Dark Arts. And just to kind of hit a couple of the highlight points, um, I, I defined the word dark arts as attacks and hindrances that seek to undermine our faith and undermine our confidence in Scripture. And I talked about this term, and it's this trend that is happening in our world today called deconstruction. And it's particularly happening at higher rates amongst younger generations of millennials and Gen Z, where they are going through kind of a reevaluation of their faith, dealing with seasons of just questioning and doubting. But oftentimes, deconstruction is seen as this demolition of Christian belief that will often lead to the abandonment of that belief. And I talked about how important it is to have a solid and strong foundation. And, and I started with uh, a couple attacks of the dark arts and how we can defend ourselves against those, those attacks. And so um, last week I talked about postmodernism, which is this kind of worldview that we see in our world today, this sort of you-do-you mentality that you have your truth, I have my truth. You know, don't criticize my truth because it's just my lived experience. And basically this belief that there's really no kind of universal knowledge or absolute truths. It's all just kind of subjective and relative. Uh, so I touched on that a little bit, and then I also touched on uh, what I just called the, the issue of inspiration and, and understanding what exactly it means that the Bible is the inspired Word of God and how we need to have a better understanding of inspiration that can account for some of the difficult things that we see in the Bible. And one of the main points I made was that inspiration is not an event, it is a process. And so that's what I dealt with last week. I am going to continue making my way through some more attacks of the dark arts today. So one of the things that I am trying to keep in mind when I study the Bible is the perspective of somebody who isn't a Christian or perhaps a brand new Christian with very little Bible background. And it's why I'm passionate about doing teachings like this. And it's just, again, kind of that word foundation. I want people to have a stronger foundation. And, and to kind of give you sort of the, the mental image that I conjure up when I'm, you know, thinking of this is I'm imagining, you know, somebody who is a brand new Christian, maybe they just started coming to Radius, and they gave their, you know, their, their life to the Lord. And, and that's awesome. And, you know, they're, they're brand new. They don't really have much Bible background, and they want to know, okay, what do I do now? And the typical Christian answer would be, well, you got to start reading the Bible, right? Which, of course, I mean, that's a great answer. So they open up the Bible and start reading. And, you know, maybe, you know, they've probably heard of Jesus before. They maybe know some of the big characters like Noah and Moses and stuff like that. But they open up the Bible, start reading at the beginning, and you get about 20 chapters or so into the book of Genesis, and there's some pretty wild stuff that's happened, okay, to say the least. Right? You've got God telling this guy Abraham to sacrifice his son. I mean, that's just crazy. Some woman turns into a pillar of salt. There's a talking snake. God gets so fed up with humanity, he sends a flood to wipe everybody out except for one family. I mean, what in the world is going on here? Right? What am I supposed to do with this? What does this mean to me? What kind of God is this? Right? What, what in the world is going on? Okay, so that's kind of the picture that I, I, I want to try to keep in mind because I, I want to be able to understand the Bible in a way that can help bring understanding and clarification to some of the difficult things. Because reading the Bible as 21st century Americans, we can come across many things in the Bible that we find challenging and difficult and, and problematic. 
And those problematic things are used by the dark arts to attack and can lead to deconstruction. And so today, as I continue going through the dark arts and the attacks, I want to kind of focus in on some of the problematic things or the challenging things in the Bible that we come across and, and what we can learn and what we can say about those. So let's continue on. So the next thing that I want to talk about in the attacks are contradictions and inconsistencies. What do we do when it looks like the Bible is contradicting itself or is being inconsistent, right? Where one verse says this, but then this verse seemingly says something totally different. What in the world do we do? And, and this kind of feeds into a little bit of what I talked about last week with the issue of inspiration, this kind of understanding, well, that if this really was the Word of God, it wouldn't contradict itself. It can't do that sort of thing. So let's look at a few examples so first off, I've got a couple verses here that I've, I've got on the screen here side by side, and I'm not going to read them both, but if you kind of take a quick glance at it, you'll notice that they are both telling the same event. They sort of set up the story and the event that they're recalling in the same exact way. So we've got 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 1 Chronicles chapter 20. Okay, it says Joab led out the army, but David remained in Jerusalem. Okay, that's kind of the setup here in both of these chapters. And something interesting happens here if you were to continue to read the story in both of these books. So the very next verse in 2 Samuel chapter 11 goes into David's, I'll just say, incident with Bathsheba, okay? Where, you know, he sees Bathsheba showering, calls her over, she's a married woman, he sleeps with her, she gets pregnant, and then he sends her husband to the front line of the battlefield where he is killed. It's a horrible situation, right? Um, but First Chronicles just skips over that whole story. Why isn't that in there, right? It just completely omits that story, and that seems kind of odd. And, you know, it, you can imagine somebody who's being critical of the Bible would say, well, you know, why does it do that? Why is that story in one book but not in, in the other book? You know, is, is the author trying to hide the dirty little secret? Are they lying? Are they trying to deceive us? You know, what in the world's going on here? Why do you have it in one book but not in the other? And one of the things that's important to know about the Bible is different books were written for different reasons, and they were written to different audiences, and the authors had different kind of goals in, in mind when they were writing. So the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles recall the life of King David, right? David and Goliath and, and David's story. But the goal of the author of Chronicles was a little bit different than the goal of the writer of the book of Samuel. The, uh, the books of Chronicles were written after Samuel, and why that's significant is because of this. So the, the books of Chronicles were written for sure at least during and partly after the Babylonian exile, which is when the Israelite people were taken in captivity out of their homeland to exile in Babylon. And this was an event that was this very just tragic, traumatic event. It lasted like 60 years. And the writer of Chronicles is addressing his generation that had gone through or was going through the trauma of exile. And what he's doing is he is trying to instill hope in his generation, a generation that experienced the exile. And the writer is intentionally glorifying King David, and he wanted to prevent a picture of the kingdom as it should have been. 
So if he was just trying to lie or deceive, it would have been a really bad attempt because all somebody would have had to have done is just flip back a few pages to the book of Samuel and read the story, right? Or I guess in that case, maybe grab a different scroll, right? It wasn't in book form yet, but he's trying to instill hope in his generation. You've got people that grew up in exile, and that was the only life they had ever known. And they were hearing stories from their mom and dad or grandma and grandpa about how God was the deliverer, and he was the provider. And they're sitting there asking questions like, well, what in the world's going on? Where is God now? Why hasn't he delivered us now? Where is he at? And the chronicler is trying to give them a picture of what the kingdom should have looked like, even though they know that's not what happened. He's trying to say, when a future son of David comes along, here's what it's going to look like, okay? So don't give up hope. Don't give up faith. God is still God. He's still in control. Keep trust alive. Keep faith alive. But there is a future hope one day a new king of da- or new son of david is going to come along and here's the picture of what to look for here is what we need to look for and that future son did come along and his name was jesus so the writer of chronicles has a bit of a different goal in mind and he's writing to a different audience for a different purpose let's go to another example this is one of my favorites and this is out of the book of proverbs chapter 26 Verses 4 and 5 say this, Do not answer fools according to their folly, lest you be a fool yourself. And then verse number 5 says, Answer fools according to their folly, lest they be wise in their own eyes. Um, Yeah, seems like a contradiction, right? I mean, what are we supposed to do with that? Um, So is it a contradiction? I mean, okay, sure, but is that a problem? No, not at all, and here's why. Well, I'll say this, it's, it's really only a problem if you look at the Bible like it's a rule book, right? You just, here's the Bible, follow the rules, and then you run into this, and you're like, I don't know what to do now, right? It's like, what am I supposed to do? Well, the Bible is not really a rule book, it's a guide to wisdom. At least that's what the book of Proverbs is all about. And wisdom is a little more complicated than just following rules. Wisdom knows what to do given the situation you find yourself in. Maybe in some situations you should do this, and in other situations you should do that, and the wisdom comes in at knowing which bit of wisdom to apply given the situation that you're in. And so the Bible is dealing with the complexities of life, that there isn't always a clear-cut, one-size-fits-all answer. It's a little more complicated than that. So let's look at a couple more examples. And before I get to the next one, I want to throw out a question just for you to kind of ponder for a second, okay? Is it possible that two seemingly contradictory things can both be true at the same time? Okay, hang on to that. Let's go to the next verse. Proverbs 16, 9. Here's what it says. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. One version says, in his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. So I I spoke a message earlier this year called God's Guidance, where I talked about his guidance and direction in our life and the will of God. And I talked about this subject of free will and determinism. And that free will, you know, we can freely choose to make our decisions and we're responsible. Or determinism, that ultimately our actions don't matter and everything's predetermined. And I looked at this verse, because this verse seemingly suggests both, that I have my will, I make the plans in my heart, but God is determining 
my steps. How can that be? I would say, yeah, we're definitely free to, we're responsible, we're accountable for our actions, but we also know and see verses in the Bible that God works all things for the good of those who love him. We also see picture in the Bible at the end of Revelation of, right, knowing what the end, what the end vision is, what the end picture is, that his will will be done and his kingdom will come, and there's ultimately nothing I can do to mess that up. So which is it? Do we have free will or is everything determined? And I would say the answer is yes. It's yes. Can you reside in the tension of it, right? We often want an either-or answer, but is it possible that it's both? Let's do one more. So the Bible is, I think, constantly kind of inviting us to engage with it, and it's why we sort of see verses like this, because it, it, gets, it triggers us to think about it, right? Again, it's not just here, follow the rules. No, it wants us to engage with it. And, and the, Bible, the Bible sort of engages and challenges itself a little bit. So one of the things that we learn out of the book of Proverbs, I'd say one of the big lessons that we can learn is that you would be wise to obey the Lord's commands. That's going to lead to blessing. But you would be foolish to disobey the Lord's commands as that's going to lead to punishment and consequences, right? And we would all say, yeah, that's good wisdom. That's true. Absolutely. Okay? So that right there is what is known as the retribution principle. Essentially, right, you obey, God will bless you. You disobey, there's going to be punishment and consequences. And that sounds great. But then we get to the book of Job. And Job has some things to say. One of the points of the book of Job is wrestling with this retribution principle. Because right at the beginning of the book of Job, we learn he is righteous and upright in the eyes of the Lord. He's done absolutely nothing to deserve what is getting ready to happen to him. And if you know the story, Job goes through hell, okay? Um, his family is killed, his livestock and possessions, right, killed, destroyed, and he's stricken with these painful boils all over his body. I mean, it's just this horrible situation. Yet Job has been obedient, and why is he being punished? What in the world's going on? I thought it was the retribution principle. Why is Job being punished if he is righteous in the eyes of the Lord? And the most like loaded question in the whole book, and one of the like most loaded questions in the whole Bible, is in the beginning of the book of Job when Satan asks God, "Does Job fear God for nothing?" And he's getting at what motivates Job to do good things and to be obedient. And it turns out that if God ran things and ran the world strictly adhering to the retribution principle, we would cheat the system. In other words, we would only do good things because of the blessings. We would only do good things for selfish ambition and because we want all the stuff that comes with it. And if that was the case, if that was our motivation, are we really good after all? Right? And so there is kind of this tension between right, the, the, the book of Job and its wrestling with this retribution principle sort of thing. And so, again, we would come back to, well, is the wisdom of Proverbs true or is the wisdom of Job true? And again, I would say, yes, absolutely, they are true. Um, are, the con are, the, are the blessings of God, are they conditional or are they unconditional? And again, I would say, yes, yes, they are right? Grace is free, right? It's a free gift. It's unmerited favor. It's, it's not earned, but that doesn't give me just a license to say, I've got my free ticket. Now I'm going to just go do whatever I want to do and live however I want to live, right? We all know that there are consequences to our actions. 
Now, being that we're New Testament believers, we understand all of our punishment was put on Jesus, right? So God's no longer punishing us, but we know we live in a fallen world and there's consequences to our actions. But at the same time, I would still say, yeah, you would absolutely be wise to obey the Lord's commands and follow his will. But that doesn't mean that everything is going to work out for you in every situation, every single time. And so we kind of see this wrestling, this tension with those two things in the Bible. So I think a lot of these sort of criticisms that come at the Bible saying it's contradictory or inconsistent, they, they don't really get at the depth and the complexity of what the Bible is trying to do. At least, in my opinion, the more I study the Bible, the deeper it gets, right? Okay, so let's go to the next one. Let's talk about some Old Testament laws, shall we? Everybody excited now? <laughs> okay, so here's what I want to do. Look, I understand, you know, that's... We don't really just open up to the book of Leviticus when we're like looking for something, you know, fun to read, okay? Like that's just not where we immediately go when we're opening up our Bibles. So I understand reading Old Testament laws are not the most fun thing. So for this point, here's kind of what I want to do. I'm going to give you just sort of a general kind of overview, and then we're going to look at one law in particular, and then we're going to get to Jesus because Jesus has something pretty great to say about it. So... There are there's 613 laws in the Old Testament from Exodus through Deuteronomy. Okay, they're called the Mosaic laws because they were given to Moses. And when we read some of these laws, you know, we, we read them today and we'll think like, you know, that seems outdated, that just seems weird. And then some of them we read, we find, you know, very sort of like, you know, that just seems immoral. I don't like that. That does not sound great at all. What's going on here? And one of the things that sometimes we can do when we approach these laws is we read them like we would read the Constitution or like a law book or something like that. That like, you know, Article B, Section A, Line 4. These laws are not really meant to be interpreted that exact same way. We need to understand that they are inserted within a context of a larger overall story. And they're meant to tell us something within the context of that larger overall story. And one of the things that they're meant to tell us, well, a few things, is it, they're meant to show us how bad humanity got, how wicked and evil things got. Uh, they're meant to show us our inability to submit to God's authority and to follow his commands. And it's also meant to show our desperate need for redemption, redemption and restoration. So, one of the things about these laws also is that these laws were not given to all of humanity. These laws are not universal laws that were meant to be followed for all people groups throughout all time. They were given to a particular set of people at a particular time in history that were going to reflect God's wisdom and righteousness to the surrounding nations at that time in history. This is not a universal set of rules. This is not the be all end all. These were a first step towards something greater. And it was a big step in the right direction. As maybe crazy as that sounds to us today, if you compare Israelites' laws to the laws of the surrounding nations, it was a step in the right direction, okay? When things like human sacrifice and child sacrifice were common occurrences in the ancient Near East, okay, the Israelites and God were like, you know, yeah, we're not gonna do that. Let's take step one and start with animals, okay? So again, this is a step in the right direction. So let's look at a particular example in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24. 
and here's what it says. Suppose a man enters into marriage with a woman, but she does not please him because he finds something objectionable about her. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. So he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. She then leaves his house and goes off to become another man's wife. And it continues... Then suppose the second man dislikes her, writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand. Yeah, you're not going to like this, by the way, okay? Just in case, you know, you're not going to like it, but just, okay, hang on. And sends her out of his house, or the second man who married her dies. Her first husband, who sent her away, is not permitted to take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that would be abhorrent to the Lord, and you shall not bring guilt on the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a possession." So, yeah, as I said, um, if we're just honest about how this makes us feel, the answer is not great, okay? You're not supposed to look at this and like it. Um, but why does reading this and other laws in the Old Testament as a 21st century American, why does it bother us? And I would say it doesn't bother us first because we're, you know, more evolved or we're morally superior. I think it bothers us first and foremost because we know the teachings of Jesus, and we know what he taught. And I would submit to you that that is even true of people who are not Christians. Here's why. The Bible has been fundamental in the building of Western civilization, okay? These ideas, these principles that life is intrinsically valuable and that men and women are created equal are biblical values. And I would say that even people in America today, for the most part, regardless of your worldview or religion, we are pretty much living our lives with the assumption that those are true and good and right things, that we are acting and living our lives in that way. And so that's why, uh, even if we're not a Christian or whatever, we have at least been influenced to some degree by the Bible and by the teachings of Jesus. And so that's why reading verses like this bother us. Right? This reflects a patriarchy where men had all the power and women didn't and they didn't have any rights. Only men were allowed to issue a certificate of divorce. And then this poor woman here, through no fault of her own, is now seen as inferior and shamed and defiled because of the actions of these men. So, the key part here in this verse lies in that highlighted section that he finds something objectionable about her. If you could actually, yeah, perfect. He finds something objectionable about her. It's kind of this vague term in the original Hebrew and has been hotly debated for a really long time, even all the way back to the days of Jesus. And on one hand, some people have interpreted to mean that it's just any sort of objectionable reason that the man found about the woman that was just reason enough to issue a, issue a certificate of divorce. Other people have interpreted this phrase to mean something that he had discovered that she had done something sexually shameful, like she had cheated on him with another man. So what do we do? And lucky for us, Jesus has something to say about this very law. And through addressing this law, Jesus gives us a little bit of a template that we can apply to a lot of these other difficult and challenging Old Testament laws. So let's look at it in Matthew chapter 19. Here's what we got. Verses 3 through 8. Some Pharisees came to him, and to test him they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? So the Pharisees here, they are drawing Jesus into a particular debate regarding how does he interpret 
Deuteronomy chapter 24. And Jesus says this. He answered, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? He said to them, It was because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So they're drawing Jesus into this debate. Jesus, how do you interpret Deuteronomy 24? And Jesus immediately goes back to the beginning, and he quotes Genesis chapter 1, talks about the Adam and Eve story and in the Garden of Eden. And he does something, he, he reflects on what is known as the Edenic ideal, or the ideal of Eden. And he goes back to what the original intent of marriage was, that it was to be a lifelong, committed, monogamous relationship. And he says, what God has brought together, let no man separate. And they say, well, if that was the ideal, if that's the way it was supposed to be, well then, why did Moses say we could issue a certificate of divorce? Why did Moses say we could do it? Right? And Jesus says, it's because of the hardness of your heart. It's because of your hard hearts. And when he says your, he really means all of humanity. And he's getting at something that these laws don't fully express God's ideal for humanity. They are a concession because of Israel's and humanity's hardness of heart, right? We don't like change. We don't like authority. We don't like to be obedient. And so this is God stepping down and saying, okay, let's take step one to something greater. It's interesting that these laws weren't given to Adam. They were given to Moses. They weren't given at the beginning, at the start, when there was a clean slate and there was no sin. They don't express the ideal for humanity. They were given much later after, again, things like human and child sacrifice were occurring. And this is, again, the first step towards something greater. And so in Jesus giving the answer and going back to the Eden ideal, I think there's something there that we can apply in looking at the rest of these laws. And again, with this perspective of showing us how far humanity had fallen in our desperate need for redemption and restoration, and then using that template, you know, it's like you want to know what these laws are about, go back to Eden. What was the ideal? And these laws show us how far we had fallen from that ideal. So again, these laws are not a universal set of rules to be followed for all of time. They were given to a particular group of people at a particular time in history. And just because we read laws about certain behaviors that we today would find you know, immoral, it is not an endorsement of those types of things. It is not even an endorsement of the culture. It's again, God taking, getting back, getting involved in taking the first step towards something greater. So. That is some of the Old Testament laws. So for I've got two more attacks, and these next two, I'll just say, are kind of more like hot topic, a little bit touchy subject, okay? So let's look at the issue of slavery, okay? So um, 
obviously, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that there are laws in the Old Testament that deal with slavery, and I think some of what I just said in the previous point can be applied to that, but I want to talk to you about a verse in the New Testament here in just a minute, and why is Paul writing about slavery in the New Testament? But um, slavery in biblical days took on various different forms, and, and one of the forms that we know it took on was something that is called indentured servitude. Now, sometimes when Christians are answering objections about why slavery is in the Bible, they'll, they'll kind of try to explain away the issue and say that, well, slavery in the Bible is not what we would think of what it is like today, and that is true to a degree, and I'm going to get into what this means. But typically, when we think of slavery, our minds probably immediately go to the transatlantic slave trade that occurred in this country, you know, a couple hundred years ago kind of thing. And one of the forms that we see, that we know about in the Bible, was this thing called indentured servitude. And that was a form of labor in which a person was contracted to work without salary for a specific number of years. And the contract was called an indenture. And it could be entered voluntarily for eventual compensation, but it was often done as a form of debt repayment. But it could also be imposed involuntarily as like a judiciary punishment. Now, that may be a little bit different than what we would picture slavery to be. However, it in no way reflects the ideal. It is still an extremely unjust system, and it is not anything that God would condone. So, with that being said, let's look at a particular verse in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. So, we just came out of a huge series out of Ephesians. And my dad skipped over this verse because I told him I was going to talk about it. So he skipped over it, so we're going back to it. So here we go. These are the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. He says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and trembling in singleness of heart as you obey Christ. Not with a slavery performed merely for looks to please people, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the soul. Render service with enthusiasm as for the Lord and not for humans, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are enslaved or free. And verse 9 says, And masters do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same Lord in heaven, and, and with him there is no partiality. So, in, in sometimes when... Christians are dealing with difficult subjects in the Bible, especially, as I mentioned previously, Old Testament laws, you know, will say, well, you know, that's, that's Old Covenant that no longer is applied to us, right? Christ came to fulfill the law, and Hebrew says that the Old Covenant has been rendered obsolete. And that's all true, and that can be a helpful answer, but here, uh, we don't really have the luxury of saying this is Old Covenant because this is Paul in the New Testament in the book of Ephesians. And so why is Paul saying why is he talking about slavery if slavery is horrible and wrong? Why is he talking about how slaves should behave and how they should be treated? And obviously, this is something that reading as a 21st century American is very difficult. And um, what, we would, what we would like hope Paul would say or what we would want him to say as a modern audience would be like, you know, Paul, why didn't you just tell the slaves to demand their freedom and if they didn't get it, run away? Or better yet, Paul, why didn't you say, you know, slave owners, let your slaves be free because slavery is horrible and terrible, right? Paul, why didn't you say that? And we all know that the unfortunate reality is that slavery has been 
viewed as a regular and normal thing throughout pretty much all of human history and has affected all countries and nations and cultures. And it was still the normal thing during Paul's day. But here's why Paul doesn't say maybe what we would hope him to say today. Paul didn't command the slaves to run away or demand their freedom, and if they didn't get it, run away, because if there was this sudden massive slave runaway or revolt, okay, the Roman authorities would have been alerted to it. They would have gone around, and they were going to maintain peace by whatever means necessary, and whatever means necessary typically meant the sword, okay? So they would have gone around to these runaway slaves and at best thrown them in prison, but most likely they would have just killed them, okay? So that's why Paul doesn't say that. On the flip side, Paul doesn't say, you know, owners, let your slaves be free, is because, again, slavery was a normal thing, and it would have been extremely easy for a new person to come along and lay legal claim to that slave, putting him in the same position, only this time, who knows how they would have been treated, probably horribly. So, that is why Paul is saying what he's saying and not saying what he isn't saying. He is trying to work within a corrupt system. He's saying the best thing you can do to keep these people from being horribly mistreated or probably just killed is to keep them. See, as I said, slavery was normal for Paul, and Paul couldn't even really fathom a world without slavery. It would be like us trying to imagine a world without electricity, okay? Electricity is like so ingrained into how we function and operate that to try to imagine functioning in a world without electricity is like inconceivable, okay? It's kind of a similar situation for Paul. And so Paul, as I said, is working within a corrupt and unjust system. This is not an endorsement of slavery, but Paul can't change the culture and the system overnight. He's not trying to write uh, sort of the ideal, right? He's not saying, this is the ideal, let's start from scratch, because he can't do that. And also, in Paul's day, slaves were just told to be obedient, and that was the end of it. But as we read here in verse number nine, Paul is now insisting on mutual responsibility. Okay, that was a radically progressive thing for Paul to say in his day and age. And so he is saying the best thing you can do that's going to keep people from being horribly mistreated and killed is to keep them, yet treat them with dignity and respect and treat them as equals because you know, back to the Eden ideal, that we were all created in the image of God. You know that with God there is no partiality and the slave and the owner are of equal value in the eyes of the Lord. So treat them that way. So that is why Paul is saying what he says and is not saying what he doesn't say. All right, so let's get to the last one. Let's talk about women. I saved the best for last, everybody, okay? Okay, so before you put the verse up on the screen, I feel like this should come with a warning. Okay, I realize some of you, probably most of you have, have read the verse that I'm getting ready to put up on the screen or seen it. Some of you have maybe even had, um, you know, experiences, unfortunate experiences in the church where verses like this were used in a hurtful way. But I also know that there may be people in here who have never seen or read this verse before. So, you are not going to like it, but just hang with me, okay? Um, I preached this point to my my sister and my wife, and they gave me the thumbs up, okay? So if you still don't like it after this, blame them. It's their fault, all right? Okay. I'm, I'm 
delaying. Can you tell? Okay. <laughs> all right, hit me with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. These are also the words of Paul, just creating all sorts of issues. Here we go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Women should be silent in the churches. Oh, boy. Uh, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is something they want to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Okay, it just got worse. It just got worse. Uh, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, what in the world are we supposed to do with this? Why is this in our Bible? Paul, what are you doing? Why are you making things so difficult? Okay, what do we say? Well, look, the, the attacks regarding this verse, especially from the outside of the church, are pretty obvious, right? This is just fuel to the fire, right? Christianity, it's a man's religion. It's oppressive to women. It tries to silence women, okay? We've probably seen stuff like that. Um, now, within the church, sometimes uh, what we see happen when we come across verses like this are Christians will go to what I think are one of two extremes. On one side, and this is still true of some Christian denominations, they are a smaller percentage, but some Christian denominations do not allow women to be ordained as pastors or ministers in the church. And I will just say, I think that that is sad, and I disagree. On the other side, we will see Christians abandon biblical authority, and we kind of just turn the Bible into our own personalized buffet, right? We just, ooh, I like that verse, give me that, but ooh, man, that just doesn't feel good. That doesn't sit well in today's culture, so we'll just, you know, leave that on the table, and we just kind of pick and choose what we like and what we don't. So, first of all, this is a great example of why context matters, okay? I was listening to a teaching on this verse, and a guy was talking about, you know, women's roles in the ministry, and he made this statement, and I just heard this a few days ago. It wasn't even in my, my original notes, and it was just great, so I had to add it. He said this, a text without a context is just a pretext to mean whatever you want it to mean, Okay? A text without a context is just a pretext to mean whatever you want it to mean. Uh, we cannot use one verse to interpret all the other verses in the Bible. And if we have this sort of instruction manual approach to the Bible, I mean, the instruction's very clear, right? Women, sorry. But that is not a great approach. Because what happens then when we deal and see a lot of other verses in the Bible, other verses that allow women to talk. Is the Bible contradicting itself again? Or maybe it's a little more complicated. And again, the Bible is forcing us to engage with it. So, let's look at some other verses in the Bible. Let's go to the book of Galatians. Also the words of Paul, chapter 3. And this is what he says. For in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you, uh, as were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ. And so Paul, what Paul's not saying here is that there's no longer anything that, you know, there's no dif differences between people or gender or anything like that. That's not what he's saying. He's just simply saying that uh, we are all equal and we are all one under Christ, that there's no cause for boasting. There's no reason anymore to look at, oh, we're superior, you're inferior, we're better than, you're worse than. There's no hierarchy, okay, when it comes to this. We are all one and we are all equal in Christ Jesus. Let's get to some other verses because 
there are some women that are mentioned in the New Testament. So let's look at a few of them. Romans chapter 16. Some more words of Paul. This is what he says. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sancria, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. So uh, Phoebe here, a deacon in the church, she has you know, a leadership authority type role. And the reason why Paul's saying for the church in Rome to... Uh, to, to welcome her is because Phoebe's actually the one who hand-delivered this letter to the church. So Paul entrusted Phoebe to deliver this letter to the church in Rome, and what was customary at that time was the person delivering the letter, they would get up in front of the church and read the letter out loud to the church congregation. And not only that, they would typically uh, answer questions or help explain things. So I don't know about you, when I read the book of Romans, I have questions and so the fact that Paul entrusts this woman, Phoebe, here to not only deliver the letter, read it to the church, but also be able to answer questions and help explain things about it, he has a pretty high view of Phoebe here. Let's go to just a few verses later in verse number 7. Paul says this, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So Andronicus and Junia, and, and Junia are prob probably a husband and wife, but Junia here and Andronicus, they were apostles, which means, court, in Paul's definition, they were eyewitnesses. They had firsthand encounter with the resurrected Christ, and because of that, they were commissioned to preach the gospel, which is why they were in prison with Paul, okay? And he says that they are outstanding among the apostles. We don't exactly know what he's referring to, but clearly he has a pretty high view of Andronicus and Junia here. All right, let's go to one other verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says this, Any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head shames his head, but any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled shames her head. Now, I can't get too sidetracked about the head veil because you're probably wondering what that means. Basically, Paul is just addressing uh, what was appropriate attire in that culture, so he's saying dress appropriately in church. Um, but the point that I want to draw out is it's saying a woman who prays or prophesies. So this is a few chapters before Paul is writing what he writes in chapter 14, and he's just assuming that women are going to be praying and prophesying. Okay, and Prophesying is preaching. So... In light of all these other verses, we come back to chapter 14, and we are wondering, okay, then why is Paul writing this? So one of the main focuses of the letter of Corinthians to the church in Corinth is order. Paul is trying to bring order to the church. The church in Corinth had some kind of wild, crazy stuff going on that Paul was trying to address specific situations within that church to help bring order and structure to the church so that it could function properly. So the, the, the few verses before the verses that we just read in chapter 14, Paul is addressing when proper times to speak are and when it is proper to be silent, and that there would be people teaching or preaching or speaking in tongues, there would be interpreters, and he's trying to make sure that there's not just a whole bunch of people talking at once and talking over one another, so he's addressing specific situations involving this is when it's appropriate to speak, this is when it's not, but also church in the first century looked a little bit different than it does today. 
men and women didn't sit together. So you'd have men on one side, there'd be an aisle, and then women would sit on the other side. And the city of Corinth was very culturally diverse, lots of different people who spoke lots of different languages. And given the unfortunate you know, educational opportunities of women in the first century, they wouldn't be as well educated as the men, typically. And now the, the messages here would have been spoken and would have been preached in Greek. Well, not all the women would have been able to understand or speak Greek. Some of them maybe would have only understood the local dialect. Uh, some of them maybe knew Greek. Some of them maybe only knew a little bit. Some of them not at all. Okay, and there is this kind of situation where there are some women who aren't understanding the message, don't really understand the language, they're getting bored, they're talking over one another, they're creating distractions. In some cases, it's believed that they were yelling across the aisle to their husband, hey, what did they say? I couldn't hear it. Could you explain that point to me? And so there's just kind of this sort of chaotic stuff. You kind of got to use your imagination a little bit because it seems a little weird in our culture today. But Paul is addressing and he is correcting an abuse of proper speech and worship. And he's saying this is when it's appropriate to speak and this is when it's appropriate to be silent. So this verse is not to be interpreted as a universal ban for women to be able to speak in all churches throughout all time. This is a specific situation that Paul is addressing within the church of Corinth. Now, just because we don't maybe have that exact situation in our world today, which is a good thing, uh, there is still, I think, an underlying principle that can be applied, and that is that this place needs to be a place of order, right? And if you come to Next Steps and, and learn more about our culture and how to carry that, order is one of our things. And we, we have to be... We have to be a place of order. We have to be aware of the fact that there are people in here, and we see it pretty much every week, who are giving their lives to Christ for the very first time, who have never made that decision, who have never, you know, maybe heard the gospel message. And we can't allow any sort of interruptions or distractions that would hinder or prevent somebody from hearing and receiving the life-giving message of grace in their lives. So that's why Paul's writing what he's writing. Um, Two other quick points, and then I will conclude. First, let's go back once again to the Eden ideal, the template that we learned from Jesus. And the Eden ideal says that both men and women were created in the image of God. And it, God told Adam and Eve to subdue and have dominion over the earth. So we need each other, right? We are equal in our value. Uh, we may have different talents or abilities, but our, our value has been divinely established to us, and we are equal because we are just simply made in the image of God. And one more final point. Who were the primary witnesses to the resurrected Christ? Women, okay? And not only that, and you can read this in John chapter 20, okay, Mary Magdalene is the first person, she sees Jesus, the first person to talk to him, and what happens? Jesus tells Mary, go Mary and tell my disciples that I am alive. So the very first person who is an apostle and the very first person that Jesus himself entrusts and commissioned with taking the gospel message into the world is a woman. The first person who gets the blessing, honor, and privilege of bringing the greatest news the world has ever heard to the world is a woman. 
Women were the last at the cross, the first at the tomb, the first eyewitnesses, and the first to carry the gospel message into the world. If that is not a ringing endorsement for women to be able to preach and teach and use their voice to grow the kingdom, I don't know what is. Can I get an amen? All right. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, he's, he's commissioning them to preach. Listen, all Christian ministry flows out of the announcement that Jesus is alive. And here's Jesus saying, Mary, shout it from the rooftops. Let them know I am alive. All right? That's my mic drop moment, everybody. That's all I got for you, okay? I'm going to end on the high note.